Well, good morning. Welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. And uh, we're going to dive into God's Word together. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you underneath the chairs. You can grab one of those. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. Um, and uh, so we've been in this series called More Than Hap- Happily Ever After. We've been talking a lot about relationships. We've been talking a little bit about marriage. Um, and today's actually the last message. Um, and today we're going to talk about singleness. Um, specifically, uh, the title is today's, uh, entitled More Than Single. And what does God's word say about that? And what does that mean for us, both as singled and married people? Uh, This is for all of us. And so we want to dig into this today and see what God has for us. But before I get started, let me just start by saying um, the last couple of weeks have been a a journey for me in working through this text and working on this sermon. And I feel very inadequate today, more so than even usual, uh, to be sharing this message with you for a couple reasons. Number one, um, my season of singleness was pretty short. So I'm not really speaking here from a lot of ex- personal experience in this area. So I just want to acknowledge that up front. Um, my second struggle with this was as I've studied it, as I've looked at it, I've come to realize um, that, because even though my, my season of it was short, I did a lot of research, I did a lot of reading, I even interviewed some of the singles in our church to hear from them before we stepped into this. Um, and then through that process, the other thing that I've learned is that I haven't always done a super great job pastoring single people. Uh, it can, comes up in a lot of ways, I think. Uh, it could be something as simple as statements that are made in passing that you don't even realize affect. Um, like, uh, here's Courtney, she's my better half. Okay, so if I don't have that, am I half a person? Like, what does that even mean? Like, there's just things that we don't even think about, but they just come off in ways that aren't always helpful. Um, and uh, I think about even um, stories and sermon illustrations and things where I oftentimes will use marriage or family and, and maybe in ways that doesn't always relate to everyone. Um, thinking about even the, the divide that oftentimes is present in our churches between single people and married people and that the relationships aren't always there like they should be, and we, we're not connecting with our church family in the way that we should be, and I haven't been acknowledging that or encouraging that or working on that in our church. And so I just want to start by saying all of that to say part of this sermon is my own just kind of personal repentance to you and just asking you to um, forgive me in the midst of that, okay? And by God's grace, hopefully this is the start of us moving forward in a better way for that, Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is I just want to acknowledge that there's a need for this sermon in the church at large today. Um, I was doing some research in this study on singleness, and I don't know if you know this, but singleness is actually a growing um, group in America. Um, We're actually having more and more people who aren't marrying in our country um, for various reasons. And today, four out of every 10 adults in the U.S. are single. That makes 82 million single adults in America today. And here was the part that was most shocking to me as a pastor. Four out of five of those single adults consider themselves Christians. And by assumption then are attending a church somewhere. And many of them are, some of them are attending our church. Uh, and so we, this is something that we need to be talking about as a church. And, and uh, I think there's been a severe lack of teaching on this topic 
for the church at large. And, um, you know, we need to correct that. We need to deal with that. Just like married people have questions about their marriage and how do they navigate marriage for God's glory, single people have questions about how do I navigate this, my life, for God's glory. And we need to talk about that sometimes. We need to address that. And, um, and as I said earlier, this is not just a sermon for single people. This is a sermon for all of us. So if you're married, do not tune this out, okay? God has something here for us to learn, myself included, in this. And we need to acknowledge that this is part of um, our church family and that we have a gospel community here that's made up of both singles and marrieds. And we need to be investing in that and working on that together. And how can we love our single brothers and sisters better um, as a result of what we hear today from God's word? Okay. Third, I got a lot of extra stuff this morning before we get started, all right? So just bear with me. A little disclaimer for the message, okay? Um, When I was started on this, I understand that there are multiple categories of singleness. And within those multiple categories, there's even more specific stories that make up those categories, okay? And and the thing that's going to, we just have to, to deal with is that when we look at God's word today on this topic, it does not address all of those categories or all of those situations. It just doesn't. As much as I would like for it to, it doesn't. And in the same way, it doesn't answer all the questions that you probably have about singleness. It answers some of them and it addresses some of the situations, but it does not answer all of them. And so I just wanna put that on the table right now before we even get started, that we're not gonna try to make God's word say something that it doesn't say. We're gonna read and study what it does say And then we're going to walk in truth and grace in the spirit to apply it with wisdom in the areas where it's silent, okay? Lastly, here's my plan, okay? We have a really big passage to work through today, and I have to work through the whole thing in order for you to have the right context for the teaching that Paul is giving us, all right? But I don't have time to read it all. So I'm going to summarize some parts of it, and I'm going to read some specific parts. We're going to dive deeper on those parts, and then you can go back later and read the whole chapter 7 for yourself to get the whole context if you feel like you miss a part of it as we're walking through, okay? But we're going to try to walk through the whole thing. I'm going to tell you this is what Paul is teaching. Along the way, I'll draw out some, some points of application and implication for us, and then at the end... I'm going to try to wrap it all together with a couple specific just kind of driving home points of application, both for single people and married people as a result of what we hear today. Are we good? Can we do this? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's the main idea, I think, of this passage. My relationship status should depend on my desire from God and my devotion to God. My relationship status, whatever that might be, should depend on my desire from God and my devotion to God. Um, You're going to see that as we walk through, and I'll explain what that means, okay? Look at verse 1 in chapter 7. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Pause. Okay. So Paul just gave us the main topic for this entire chapter, okay? This is the big question over chapter 7, which is the first point in your notes. Should Christians be celibate? That's what Paul's addressing in this entire chapter, okay? The reason he's addressing this is here, what we believe 1 Corinthians is, is actually a letter of response 
to a letter that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul that we don't actually have in the Bible. Okay? So the church wrote Paul a letter. He's now responding to their letter with his letter. And in their letter, you notice there in verse 1 that part of it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman is in quotations. Paul is quoting their letter. So this is something that they have said to him. Like, hey, Paul, we think this is what it should be. All right? So he's responding to their teaching, to their idea about this. And what we can tell as Paul goes through his argument is they basically think that this is true for three reasons. All right? One, they see sex as something that's of the world, of the flesh, and therefore immoral and wrong, and so Christians should not have any part in it. That's kind of their thinking on the topic. And because of that, if that's true, then that should apply to all Christians. Married, single, doesn't matter. Like, if it's wrong, if it's immoral, then nobody should be doing it. That was kind of their take on it. And they back up their argument by the fact of saying that, Paul, look at you. You're single. You're celibate, right? Like, if you're our leader and you're doing it this way, then we should all be doing it this way. This is kind of their argument to Paul and their idea that they're laying out here. And Paul's, chapter 7 is Paul's answer to them. And his answer basically is this. Um, maybe, sometimes, depends. Like, he doesn't really give a super like, yes, this is it, or no, this is it. He goes, what he does is he walks through all these different scenarios in chapter 7. If you're this, if you're this, if you're this, then this is how you should respond. So we have to look at all these different scenarios and see what Paul's total teaching is on the idea. So, in verses 1 through 6... Paul first responds to this idea by talking to the married people. All right, he says, if you're married, don't stop. That's basically his teaching. Like, do not deny your spouse um, this intimacy because if you do, it could lead to greater temptation on them. And we don't want that for them. So if you're married, do not stop. Keep going. Do not be celibate. That's basically Paul's one verses 1 through 6. Okay. Then he gets to verse 7, and he makes a little passing comment here to the single people. He says, verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but he, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So what we know is at this point in Paul's ministry, he is single. All right? We don't know if he was always single, but at this point he definitely is, as you're going to see later in the text. And so he says, I wish everybody was single like me. Really, Paul? Why would you say that? Well, he's not going to tell us yet. He's going to hold. He's like holding. It's like the carrot at the end of the whole thing. So he's going to tell us later why he's saying that. But he says, like, I wish everyone was like me. But, and then notice what he says. But, all right, so I'll go back to grammar class for a second. But is a, a, a conjunction that means the opposite, right? Like, so you know, maybe that's not the way it always works. But, he says, each has his own gift from God. That's a very important statement. Each has his own gift. So he's saying, first of all, this is a case-by-case basis thing. Right? Like this is per person, per individual. There's not like one thing that just satisfies everybody. Like we have to look at each individual person. And he says each person has their own gift. That word gift there in the Greek is the word charisma, is the way we would say it today. And it's basically the same word that's oftentimes used in other parts of the New Testament to describe spiritual gifts that God gives to his people, like the gift of teaching or the gift of hospitality or the gift of whatever. And we know that in other parts of the scripture that 
God gives us spiritual gifts for three main purposes. One is to help us grow as individuals in Christ, right? Part of our gifting is to grow us up into the image of Christ. A second part of our gifting is so that we can serve God. And a third part of our gifting is so that we can serve others. So whatever gift Paul is talking about here, he's talking about that that's the purpose of it, to grow us up in the image of Christ, to help us serve God and to help us serve others, right? He says each one has his own gift from God. God gives the gifts, it's his choice, it's his plan, it's his purpose. He is perfectly and sovereignly in charge of all of it. And so whatever gifts he's given you, he did that on purpose for you. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another, meaning not everyone has the same gifts. One person's gonna have this gift, somebody else is gonna have a different gift, all right? So this is Paul's explanation of why not everybody can be single which leads us to the first biblical truth of singleness. I'm gonna give you five of these today if you wanna make a little list somewhere. Five biblical truths of singleness. Here's number one. You may or may not have the gift of singleness, okay? Whether you're single, even if you're single, you may or may not have what Paul talks about here as the gift of singleness. So let's just get some clarity around this. What is the gift of singleness as Paul describes it? Here's the way I would define that. It's the ability or desire to be celibate for the sake of serving the Lord. The gift of the singleness is the ability or desire to be celibate for the sake of serving the Lord. All those parts are so important to that definition, okay? Now, as this has been taught in the past or talked about in various church settings, I know a lot of people struggle with this, especially singles are like, I struggle with the whole gift of singleness thing. Like, I, I, I don't have it. I don't want it. Um, it. It doesn't feel like a gift. In fact, is there a return policy on the gift? Like, I don't think I want, like, let's just ship this thing back. So there's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of strife around this idea of a gift of singleness. Um, so let me just unpack it this way. Just because you're currently single doesn't mean you have the gift of singleness. It also doesn't mean that you won't get it in time. You might not have it now, but God can give it later as well. And it means that even if you don't have the gift, God does not want you to waste your singleness in this season of your life. God has you right where he has you right now for some purpose whether you have the gift or not, all right? Now, some singles do have this gift. Some singles in our church have this gift. I've talked with them, I've heard them use the language, even if they haven't described it this way or used this term, I hear them describing why they're where they're at. And we need to understand that just as Paul says here, that is a gift, friends. It's a gift to them and it's a gift to us. It's a gift to the church that God has called certain people out to follow him and to be devoted to him and not um, have to have other relationships but be able to just put all of themselves into that, into his kingdom. And we need to see that as a gift. We need to celebrate that as a gift. And if you have that gift, you need to use it to its fullest extent. 
just like Paul did, just like Jesus did. All right? We have some big hitters in the Christian world who had the gift, right? Like this is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. If you have it, use it. And married people, I wrote my notes here. This is a married people moment. All right, so this is just for you. Like you need to get this. The gift of singleness is a good thing. It's not wrong. It's not weird. It's not just them waiting for something better to come along. We cannot view single people in the church as second-class citizens in the kingdom or as some a gift from God. And just because you don't have it doesn't mean that you should look down on it or demean it for someone else. We should affirm it, we should celebrate it, and we should praise God that he gives people different gifts. And just from, again, from some reading and from some interviews and talking with people, um, Just by the way, God has not given you the spiritual task of setting up your single brothers and sisters. Okay, can we just kind of put that on the table today? Like, that's not your spiritual gift. Like, they have a gift. That's not your gift, okay? Like, if they have the gift of singleness, they don't want you to set them up. They don't need you to set them up. Even if they don't have the gift, they probably don't want you to set them up, right? Just let them follow the Lord and God be sovereign over that, okay? That's the first thing. Number two. Look at verse 8. To the married and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So he's still talking to single people here. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So he says, to the unmarried, it's, again, it's good to stay single, he says. Why, Paul? Why is it good? I'll tell you in a second. Just chill out. All right? Paul's going to get to it. But notice again he says in verse 9, but, but, That's not always the case. It's not always best. He says, if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. In other words, if you can't control yourself and you've got to have someone, then go marry. It's okay. It's not a bad thing. Paul's not even condemning it here. He's saying, guess what? You you must not have the gift, right? Because God's given you these desires. If that's true, then that's fine. Then go and marry. He says right here, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Some people, I think, at least in the Corinthian setting here, and maybe even today, feel like it's, like it's more holy, it's, it's better to be single, and so I'm going to run after that so I can be closer to God. Well, if running after that, in the midst of it, your desires lead you to sin, that's not getting you closer to God. Right? One thing that we do know for sure is that sin always impedes our devotion to God. That's true for all of us in every setting. Sin always impedes our devotion to God. So if it's all about following after God and being more devoted to him, then do whatever you got to do, right? If you need to marry, then marry. If that's going to keep you from sinning on your desires, if you're able to not, and those desires aren't as strong for you and they don't affect you, then fine, stay single and serve the Lord. Which brings us to our second truth of singleness. Sexual desire is not ultimate, Jesus is. Sexual desire is not ultimate, Jesus is. Here's what I mean by that. 
Sexual desire and temptation is a major issue for singles. Scratch that. It's a major issue for all of us. <laughs> it's, married, it's a major issue for married people too in other ways. But here's what the real issue is. We live in a culture, we live in a society that has this cultural lie that sexual expression and experience is necessary for human flourishing. That you can't be a full person, that you can't really be fulfilled if you don't have these experiences in your life. Everything about our culture says that. Every movie, every TV, every, uh, every advertisement, it's all about if you don't have this in your life, then you are not complete. And so for our single brothers and sisters, they have to live and walk and, and go in a world where in our culture for them, sex, the norm is more fast, without connection, easily anonymous, like whatever works just so you can be fulfilled. And that's what they have to live with and struggle with every day. For the married people, it's a little bit different. They, they already have that in the relationship. And so for them, it's not that, but they already know because they have it that it doesn't fulfill. And so when you feel that tension in your marriage that you're not really being fulfilled like you want to in that way, then our society says, well, then you're doing it wrong. You need more of this or you need more of that or more places or more experiences or more people or whatever their crazy solution is to make it to where it's finally gonna make you fulfilled. And it's not true. Neither one of those scenarios is true. Sex is not designed to ultimately fulfill us, but rather to point us to a greater desire for fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's temporary. It's not meant to be something that gets us where we're supposed to go. It's just something for this life that points us to an even greater desire for the one who created us for his glory. But if that's the desire that you have, then God has provided you a healthy, appropriate place to use that, and that's in marriage. And so Paul says, get married. That's fine. If you need that, use that. But here's the real key. Regardless of your current status, submit your desires to your more important devotion to God. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whatever that looks like for you, whatever desires you have, those all have to be submitted first and foremost to our devotion and our worship of God and not of ourselves. All right, then he goes on in verses 10 through 16 to now talk again to married people, but these are married people who now want to become single, all right? So basically their thought is, well, if I'm married and I can't be celibate in my marriage, then I need to get a divorce so I can be single, so I can be celibate, so I can be closer to God. And Paul's like, are you crazy? <laughs> but God's word clearly says, do not do that, right? Like divorce is not the answer. Disobeying God's word over here is not a good way to get to obeying what you think is God's word over here. He's like, so don't do that, stay married, don't violate God's commands. And then he really gets to it in verse 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. What he's saying here is that, listen, God is sovereign. Our God is a sovereign God, and he has placed you exactly where he wants you at this point in your life, wherever that is. 
And so Paul says, wherever you're at, if you're married, if you're single, then just, just stay right there and just follow God. Right? His argument really is not so much, should you stay single or stay married or whatever. His argument is, listen, it is, whichever one you are, you can follow God right as you are. You don't have to change your status to be a follower of Jesus. That's what they were thinking they had to do here. He's, he's saying, listen, there's not one status that is superior to another when it comes to following Jesus. We can all do that, no matter how he's called us. And then he goes on in verses 18 through 24 to lay that out with a whole bunch of other arguments. Not only is it marital status, but it's also national status. Are you Jewish or not? It's also social status. Are you a slave or are you free? He's like, none of that matters. Whatever status you're in, if God called you to himself in, in that form or in that way, then you can Follow God just as you are. Don't feel like you have to change it to be spiritually mature in some way. Which leads us to the third biblical truth of singleness. Your relationship status does not control your spiritual status. Singleness is not a sign of spiritual superiority or spiritual immaturity. We see both of these contrasts in the church. There are some religions, there are some denominations who believe that the most holy thing you can be is celibate, and that's why they require that their highest spiritual leaders in their churches be single and be celibate, because they believe that it's an extra measure of holiness. But the Bible doesn't say that. Paul does not say that here. In churches like ours in evangelicalism, it's oftentimes the opposite. They see singleness not as this extra level of holiness, but actually as a lower level of immaturity. As if they haven't arrived yet because they haven't gotten married. Like that somehow makes you super spiritual all of a sudden, right? They'll say things like, well, you know, once you finally love Jesus enough, then he'll bring you somebody to marry. Really? Is that how you got your spouse? Like you finally got holy and then God gave you a spouse? Oh, here's your gift. That's not the way it works. Most of us, when we got married, we realized how unholy we were, right? Like, it's not a thing about spiritually mature or not. And singleness is not a time out on you serving. Oftentimes churches see singles as less mature or less wise or less fit to lead or serve, and that's just absolutely false. Oftentimes, God has actually equipped single people to serve in some ways that married people can't. And, in some, and, and can use them in some ways that marriage doesn't allow for. So if you're single, I think what Paul would say to you is, don't wait. Don't wait on something else to happen in your life before you start serving. Just get after it and serve the Lord and go for it. And I want you to hear from me, your pastor, that there are no hindrances for you here at Harvest when it comes to serving. And whatever ways that God has gifted you and his word allows, man, step into that and serve and pour yourself out. And we have already have so many that already do that. And I'm thankful that the Lord has done that in their hearts and is doing that in their lives. But if you're still sitting on the sidelines waiting because you're single, stop it. Like get in there and get after it. The Lord wants to use you. Your maturity and your service to God are not dependent on your status, but rather on your devotion. That's really what it's about.
Where's your heart at in this? How can you use the time and resources that you've been given, whether you're single or married, this applies to both, how can you use the time and resources you've been given to greater devote yourself to God and his kingdom? That's what Paul's asking. Then he gets to verse 25. Take a look at this. He now goes to another group. He says, now concerning the betrothed, that means the engaged people, all right, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Then do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So now he talks to another group, the betrothed, the engaged people. And just a little side note here, he makes this comment. He says, on this, I have no command from the Lord. He says, but basically, here's my judgment. Some people have read statements like that from Paul to mean that this part of the Bible isn't from God. It's not inspired. We shouldn't take this as, as much as scripture as other parts. But that's definitely not what Paul is saying, okay? What he's saying here is when he says, I have no command from the Lord, he's saying, listen, Jesus never gave us like a direct teaching on this issue, so I can't quote him for you. I can't quote his teaching to you, but I can tell you what's right because I'm still inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm still an apostle of God, and I still have a word for you on this. And so his word is this. He says, in light of the present distress, and then later on he says, because the time is short, because the time is passing away, he says. That's all meaning the same thing there. What Paul is pressing in on here is that there seems to be some specific circumstance, probably a persecution of some kind, that's happening in the Corinthian church that he's going to respond to here. We don't know that for sure, but that seems what it might be. But his argument actually applies, whether there's a specific persecution or not, it doesn't matter. His argument is going to apply for all Christians at all times, because notice what he says. He says, Single or married, it ultimately doesn't matter because we need to be making all of our decisions and living our lives for the eternal rather than the earthly focus. That's his argument in this passage, in this passage here, right? That it's not about this or that or single or married. It's about are you doing whatever you're doing? Are you doing it for an eternal focus, a kingdom focus, a God focus? Or are you doing it just because of you? and what you want, and what makes you happy, and what's best in the moment. He says, it's, I believe that it's good to remain as you are. Again, if you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. He says, but if you choose to marry, it's not a sin. So that's fine too. Like, like he kind of keeps going, like it was just totally uncharacteristic for Paul, right? Usually Paul's like, it's this and nothing else. And this way, he's like, well, it could be this, or you could do this. It could go either way. Like, he's just, he says, that's not the point. His main concern here is, are you doing it for the Lord? Whatever you're doing. 
He says, but the reason I would tell you to stay single, he finally gives us the reason. You want to know the reason, all right? Why, Paul, is it better to stay single? He says, because marriage brings worldly troubles. And all the married people said, amen. All right, like, probably not the troubles you're thinking about, though, all right? That's not, I, when, I, when, I, when I first started, I was like, oh, yeah, I got that. No, 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 I didn't have that. That's not what he's talking about. Here's what he's talking about. He tells us. Paul's main concern, his reasons for staying single, is that marriage requires a person to give additional concern, to give additional attention and commitment to worldly affairs, to the institution of marriage. When you marry someone, you now are committed to be giving time and attention and devotion to that spouse and possibly to kids and to a family. And you're making this lifelong major commitment that you can't get out of. And Paul's saying, in light of the persecution, in light of the time is short, I don't want this extra commitment to take you away from being fully devoted to God. So it might be better if you just stay single so you can give 100% of yourself to him and not be back and forth between marriage and God and marriage and God. And then he says, I would spare you that. I love Paul's tone in this passage. It's very pastoral. He's very much just concerned for his people and trying to love on them and counsel them. He's not giving them a command. He's not giving them a new law to follow in terms of marriage or singleness. That's what the Corinthians were trying to do, right? Like everybody needs to be celibate. He's like, no, 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 we're not laying down a law here. We're just coming along with love and counsel. And then he says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. That's a really interesting statement, right? And then he goes on to say, and if you buy stuff, act like, act like you're not buying stuff. And if you do this, and he has all these arguments to say, basically, you have to live in this world. He's not calling us to, like, stop living in the world and go build a holy huddle and, like, just build the walls and commune ourselves together. It's not what he's saying. He's saying you still have to live in the world. He says, but don't live for the world. In marriage, in business, in finances, in all your stuff, live as if you're living for the kingdom, for eternity, for the future, not for just the here and now. Be committed and devoted there. The question is this. Will, if you want to get, he's saying, if you're, if you're engaged and you want to get married, here's the question to ask. Will marriage increase my devotion to God or just my devotion to me? Why am I really wanting to be married? Is it really to be more devoted to God, to follow him, to, to use my marriage for his glory, or is it just to satisfy or do whatever I want to do for me? Then he gets to verse 32. Verse 32, he actually changes and gives us a second argument for why it's good to be single in this situation. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about, how, about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Says, the second reason is I want you to be free from these anxieties. Like you guys are all anxious and worried and all fretting because they've given you this false teaching that everybody has to be celibate. And now you're trying to figure out, oh, how do I do that? And how do I do whatever else I'm doing, like single or married? And how's this going to work? And you're all freaking out. <laughs> He's like, just chill. 
right? You don't have to be worried here. He says, if you're single, if you're unmarried, he says, you're worried about what pleases God. Like, how do I stay single and stay celibate and please God? And how does that work? And you're all worried about that. The married people are all worried about how do I please my wife and her husband and not stay celibate? And how do I please God and stay celibate? Like, those things don't seem to work together. And so now you have this, this divided devotion between the two that's kind of pulling you back and forth. Paul's point is this. He's like, listen, you're all worked up about the status and you're missing the devotion that God's calling you to. Here's the fourth truth for singleness this morning, I think, from the text. Anxiety over your singleness distances you from God. As I read, as I studied, as I spoke with some of our single adults, I found over and over again that this is a recurring theme, that there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of anxious questions around singleness. Why am I not married? What's wrong with me? What do I, what do, I do now that all my friends are getting married and I don't have anybody to, to spend time with anymore? Will I be lonely like this forever? For some people, it's, why do I desire not to be married? That, is that weird? Like, everybody else seems like that's a weird thing. Like, why is that? Why do I have that going on? What's my purpose in all of this? These questions fill us with anxiety. And in times like that, because they're going to come, we're all human. You can't avoid it. It's going to come. It's what do we do with it that matters. In times like that, God wants you to, not to pull away from him in anxiety, but to press in and draw closer to God in dependence. I wrote it down this way. Anxiety diminishes our devotion, but trust deepens our devotion. And again, this applies in, in multiple areas of life. This isn't just in terms of singleness. Like this applies for all of us. Anxiety over anything diminishes our devotion to God because it gets us all caught up in me and my stuff in this world and gets my eyes off of Jesus. But trust, faith, hope in him deepens our devotion. And that's where we have to go when anxiety comes knocking. So just a real practical couple of things here that I found as I was working through this. For if you are single and you struggle with anxiety over your singleness at times, there's a couple of things I think that could maybe help with that. The first one I would say is this, healthy self-care. Here's what I mean by that. I think a lot of times singles, because they are single, because they feel like they're doing life on their own in a lot of ways, they feel this need to be strong and independent and I can do it myself and I don't need anybody and I'll make it. And friends, that's just not true for any of us. It's just not. We weren't meant to do it on our own. So when we try to put on this faux strength and this, 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 this fake independence that I can handle it all, then we don't allow God to care for us. We don't allow our brothers and sisters to care for us. And so we need to, to let that go. We need to, to press in and seek help when you need help. Because a lot of times people don't know. And you have to ask I think a way that can help that is number two, is to build relationships. Oftentimes singles lack 
the, the kind of built-in relationship, accountability, and the best sounding board, and this, some of the elements are kind of just built into the marriage relationship. They just don't have it. They just don't have anybody in their life like that. So they have, you have to seek it. You have to build those relationships. You have to be intentional about finding people that you can be honest with and that, that you can talk with and that you can rely on and they'll love you. And small groups is a great place for that. The church is a great place for that. But we have to go after it. We have to embrace our church family and build those relationships. And married people, that goes for you too. You have to be intentional about reaching out as well and building those relationships. It's not just on the singles, right? As married people, we need to be seeking out and inviting them. Like, have them over to your house for dinner. Invite them. I know you got a family thing going on. Invite them to your family thing, all right? They can come hang out. They'll have fun. Like, it's good. Like, involve each other in your lives so that we can build these relationships and have the community that God has called us to have. I've been so encouraged over the last couple of weeks. They didn't even know this. But two different times, I've heard two different small group leaders talking to me and they said, hey, yeah, the other day so-and-so came over before dinner. They have a single person in their group. Hey, they came over for dinner before group and we hung out for a couple hours and just got to spend some time together. It was so great to, to, to do that. And yes, yes, right? Like we need to be building these relationships so that we're all being cared for. We're all being lifted up. We're all being the family of God to one another. And then Paul says, I say all of this for your benefit, not restraint. Again, Paul's not laying down a law or command. He's coming along to love and counsel. He says, I do this to promote good order, which basically means to promote obedience to God, to keep you from sinning, to keep you from temptation. That's the get married if you need to get married part. And then secondly, he says, to secure undivided devotion to God. That's Paul's call to all of us, married or single, is that we would have undivided devotion to God. Whatever your situation, whatever your choice, just be devoted to God. That's what Paul's driving home. Then 36 through 38, he just kind of recaps his teaching here. He says, again, if you desire to marry, great, marry. Better to marry than sin. If you desire celibacy, great, be single but only if you desire that for yourself. Not because anybody's forced you to, not because you feel guilty about it, not because somebody's shaming you with it, but because you desire that, then great, do that. And then he makes this statement in 38 that I wanna, I wanna end on here. He says, he who marries does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. It's been a very troubling statement, I think, for a lot of people when they've had to deal with this marriage versus singleness issue. How is it better? It's better? Again, keep this. Anytime you study God's word, you've got to keep it in the context of what Paul is saying. He just gave us in the whole rest of the chapter, here is why. Because of this situation, because of this circumstance, because we're trying to keep our eyes on eternity, that's why it's sometimes better to be single. He's not defaming marriage here. He's not pitting marriage and singleness against it. Like sometimes this verse is used to like, like make it like it's two sides fighting against one another, like married and single and which one's better. And Paul is not doing that. He's not making a value statement about which one is better or worse. He would not contradict God's word 
in Proverbs 18 where it says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Or when God told Adam and Eve to marry and procreate and fill the earth, like Paul would not go against that. Be saying in some circumstances, in some situations, in some people's gifting, it's better to stay single. And that's okay. And it's a good thing. Which brings us to the last point here, the biblical truth of singleness number five. You have advantages in your singleness. In this text, Paul points out some advantages to being single. In verses 28 and 29, he says, first of all, you have more flexibility. Without a commitment to marriage, without a commitment to having to be devoted in time and attention to a spouse, then you are available to be more committed to God and to his kingdom. And then the second one in verse 34, he says that you have the advantage of having more focus. That without the competing focus of the worldly systems and the spouse and the marriage, that you can give more of your focus and more of your attention to the Lord. And then the third advantage, I believe, is more fruitfulness. But the third one only comes if the first two are handled correctly. If I use that additional flexibility or that additional focus to make it about God and about his kingdom rather than about me and myself and what I want, then that's going to lead to more fruitfulness for the Lord. And that's why Paul says it's better. I think oftentimes married people assume that singles have like more time than they do as married couples. And singles definitely don't feel that way. Um, but I think here the reality is, is this. For both married and single, we're missing the point. The amount of time we have to devote to the Lord is more dependent on how we use our time for other things that compete with the Lord. It's not about married or single. It's about how am I using whatever time I have. Let's not, let's not get into this stupid comparison game about who has more or less time. It doesn't matter. It matters, I have this amount of time. How am I going to use it to devote myself to the Lord rather than to Netflix or rather than to basketball or rather than to business or rather than to whatever your thing is, right? We all have a certain amount of time to use. How am I using that time to devote myself to the Lord and to his kingdom? That's the question. All right, last thing, point number two on your outline there. Let's get a couple quick points of application and we'll be done for today. Point number two is this, desire and devotion. It's about the heart, not the status. Desire and devotion, it's about the heart, not the status. In terms of desire, the simple question is this, what desire has God placed on your heart? Has he, has he given you the desire to be married for his glory, not for you, for him? Then great, go for that. Has he given you the desire to be single or celibate for his glory? Then great, go for that. The key is that I'm taking whatever desire he is giving me and I'm submitting that to him and to my greater desire for him, for his glory, for his kingdom. And then secondly, in terms of devotion, the question is this. How is your relationship status affecting your devotion to God? I think this comes out in three major areas. Number one is sin. As we said earlier, sin destroys devotion. So if you're single, is sexual sin destroying your devotion for God? 
If you're married, is your idolatry of your spouse or your kids or sex, is that destroying your devotion to God? Don't let your status lead to devotion destroying sin in your life, whatever it is. The second area I think is service. Service shows devotion to God. If you're single, have you stalled out in your service because you're waiting in your singleness for God to change something? And so you've stopped serving him? If you're married, have you stalled in your service because you're too absorbed in the relationships of this world with your spouse or your kids or whatever else is going on in your life? Paul warned us against that as well. And then thirdly, devotion is about eternity. Eternity fuels devotion for God. If we're gonna keep going on this life, if we're gonna keep following Christ and keep loving and serving him, if you're doing that out of anything other than devotion for eternity with him, you're gonna burn out quick. It's gotta be focused on that. If you're single, if you're married, are you focused more on this life or the next life? Your earthly relationship status won't matter in eternity. Only your level of devotion. When you get there and you see Jesus face to face, he's not gonna give one flip what your relationship status was on earth. He's gonna care, was your heart devoted to him? I found this great quote when I was studying this week. Marriage will one day give way to eternity where we will all be single and family in the presence of Christ. Praise the Lord. Let's live for that reality. Let's live for eternity, not the earthly. My relationship status should depend on my desire from God and my devotion to God. Stand with me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you now. God, we thank you that. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to so many areas of our life. Lord, it doesn't always give us all the answers that we want, but we know that it does give us all the answers that we need. And that we can love you and that we can trust you as we're trying to figure it all out. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to live for something so much bigger than ourselves, so much bigger than this life and this world. And we want to do that. We want to honor you with undivided devotion every day and in every season. Lord, I would ask, Lord, that you would please send your spirit right now. Lord, help us to discern the desires that you have given us and help us, Lord, to submit those desires, whatever they might be, to your glory. And build a life in us that is completely, solely, 100% devoted to you 
to your love. I pray all of this in Christ's name.